This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. Uh, praise the Lord. Let's let's move on this morning and go into our um, uh, message. And we have been looking at uh, the strategies and the assaults of the enemy. Um, we have seen that uh, Satan seeks to uh, deceive, that he seeks to destroy, and he seeks to rule your life. And last week we began looking at Satan as an accuser, and we are going to finish that uh, this morning. And this is a really important uh, message. And these four messages provide a framework for you and I understanding how we can live uh, the Christian life victoriously and successfully and how we can navigate through the uh, the failings that we might have, the victories that we have, um, and without getting filled with pride or, or the failings that we have and, and without being destroyed by uh, false, um, uh, false accusations of the enemy concerning our spiritual state. So, uh, all of these kinds of things are encompassed in these examples that we've used over the recent weeks. So why don't we pray and ask the Lord to bless this message for us this morning. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you for your love and your grace. We praise you this morning, uh, Lord, that in your Son the work has been completed and that we are saved by your grace through faith in Jesus Christ, faith that he lived, faith that he died in our place, and faith that because sin had no reign over him, nor could death reign over him, and he was raised to new life. And so also we who put faith in him will be raised in that day unto eternal life, and in fact are raised already by trust and faith in Jesus. So we praise you this morning. Help us to understand our position in Christ in this life. We love you. And we praise you. Amen. Hallelujah. All right. So let's um, let's move on here then. Um, we're looking at Satan, how he attacks as the accuser of the brethren. Um, and so a couple of texts that we've been using out of the New American Standard, Revelation 12, verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now this salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. So imagine that that statement, he accuses them before our God day and night. Imagine a courtroom and, uh, and Satan as a prosecutor bringing accusation about you to God, uh, about the people of God, to God um, always. Second uh, Corinthians 10, uh, 2, verses 10 and 11, But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also, for indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did, be, did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So the enemy has plans and schemes against us. And 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So there is a 
a godly sorrow, um, and there is a sorrow that it does not produce the fruits of righteousness. It doesn't produce uh, repentance, um, and that sorrow, in fact, produces death. So we have a victorious position in Christ, and that is vital for us to understand. And we talked about, uh, or we mentioned within this text, uh, Satan uh, having schemes uh, there in Second Corinthians 2. Uh, so that no advantage of, of, uh, would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And the word schemes there means thoughts or a purpose uh, that is thought out. And so Satan is not, he's not um, trying to be reactive concerning your life. He is trying to be proactive. He has a scheme and a plan, and he's trying to work his scheme and plan against the people of God uh, that, he, that he would have... Um, if he can't steal your soul, he would try and steal the effect of your life by bringing you under these false accusations that he has against you. And that that's a really important point for us to uh, understand in our Christian lives. Now, we also looked at Zechariah chapter 3, which gave us a glimpse into heaven. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, uh, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, uh, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. So we have, you know, in that we see this kind of heavenly courtroom there, and we talked about that in the last message, so we don't have time to go back over all of that. There's a fair bit here to cover this morning. So we've been looking at Satan as the accuser, uh, last week and this week, and we discovered that he targets the heart and conscience, and his weapon is an accusation, or accusation in general. His purpose is to bring an indictment by God's will. So in other words, God's will states thus and thus, but you have lived this way, therefore you're a failure, and uh, because the will of God reveals this, you haven't met that standard, you're a failure, uh, these kinds of things. And so uh what do we do? How do we defend against this? Well, our defense against this is a wonderful defense because it's not a defense that is emanating from you or I. It's not about strength of will. Um, it's not about intelligence, um, all these kinds of things. Your defense is in the sufficiency of the intercession of the Son of God. And this is wonderful because it takes away the, um, the requirement for us to meet or bear up to some kind of standard in order to 
uh, to avoid this accusation of the enemy or to be able to deal with it by, uh, you know, by reaching a spiritual version of the Anthony Robbins personal development uh, program, uh, you know, that, uh, that because we failed now we need to do these seven steps to uh, personal victory. It's not that at all. And so uh, our defense is the Son of God, his intercession for us. It is true that Satan seems to always be at the ready to bring an accusation against you and I, doesn't he? He, he always seems ready to do this. But greater than this is that Jesus Christ stands at God's right hand to intercede for us. 1 John 2 verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. So John writes to them in, to encourage them in righteousness and, and he, he says, the things I'm writing to you, I'm writing that, that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So when we lived in Macau, uh, you know, at that stage, I wasn't at all skilled with English, let alone foreign languages. But we used to uh, walk down in the centre of town and because there's a very strong Portuguese influence uh, in Macau, we would see these signs on buildings that were in Portuguese, and one of the signs was a sign for a lawyer, and his name was an advogado, not avocado, advogado. And um, I hope, hopefully I got the pronunciation right. If I didn't, too bad. So, but it's very closely related to this word advocate, and an, an, an advocate is one who takes your case and pleads that to the magistrate on your behalf, and they petition for you, and they bring the the evidence uh, to the magistrate on your or to the judge on your behalf. So, what gives Jesus the right to advocate for us and to to bring our case before the Father? Well, at the cross, he declared regarding his own work, "It is finished." But this does not mean he's finished working. It, it meant that his work on earth was finished. But with the finish of his work on earth, in heaven, he continues with an unfinished work at this stage. And what is that work? That work involves his work in us to perfect us and bring us to maturity. His work in us to take us through a process of sanctification. His work in us to petition on our behalf before the Father, and uh, th this is a work of perfecting us uh, for glory. What a wonderful God we serve. Amen. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, rejoice in that because what this means is you don't have to advocate on your behalf by somehow saying, God, look at the merit that I've established in my own uh, uh, good behaviour and I, I know that I failed here, but, Lord, look at the overall picture of how good I've been since I came to faith in you. And it's not about that at all and we forget this so often 
as we go through the Christian life, we forget that uh, that we have an advocate with the Father. So your defense is the interceding Son of God. Hebrews 13 says, Now the God of peace who brought us up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. Wow. There's, there's a verse we could unpack and preach on for uh, probably just about the, the remainder of the year. Now, the God of peace who brought you up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. What a wonderful statement about Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, the God of peace, right? Anyway, that's not the focus of our message this morning. But he he says here, now the God of peace equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This this is the work, the ongoing work that Jesus is doing in your life, this ongoing work to perfect you, um, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So he's working in your life to equip you to do uh, everything good according to his will. Now, this perfecting ministry has a couple of aspects to it. Um, one is that uh, as our high priest, Jesus intercedes for us, and he provides the grace that is needed when we are tested and tempted. Um, you know, if it comes to uh, uh, failure, we turn to the, the throne of grace in desperation and in pleading, then he will see us through. He's the one who will take us through that period and bring us into victory. We don't have to gain the victory. He has it. We have to walk in that victory. And if we yield to temptation and sin, then he ministers on our behalf. He ministers as our advocate to forgive us and to restore us uh, into fellowship once again. Because, you know, it's definitely true that when we sin, uh, our fellowship with the Father is, is damaged. At the very least, it is damaged, and our fellowship with others may be damaged also. But we have an advocate with Jesus uh, who pleads on our behalf. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So imagine the courtroom of heaven that we spoke of um, Earlier, God is the judge on the throne. Joshua is the high priest and he stands before God in filthy robes, which is an indication that he's guilty. And the text indicated that because it talked about his sins. So Satan stands and he is standing off to the right of Joshua facing the, the judge and he brings the uh, accusation about Joshua to the judge, being God the Father. And he's resisting Joshua and accusing Joshua. and uh, but Jesus stands at the right hand of God to represent Joshua and not to res resist him, but to restore him. And this explains why Jesus returned to heaven 
with wounds, not with scars, with wounds in his body. These wounds are an everlasting evidence to us of what he did when he died for us. They're there everlasting for us to gaze upon and be in awe of the uh, the the majesty of his grace that he demonstrated toward us in dying for us uh, at Calvary. So God was merciful and gracious to save us when we first trusted Christ. But further to this, imagine such great love. Imagine that kind of love that he would redeem sinful people from their sin. Now, as his child, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, how much does he love you now? If he loved you enough to redeem you from your sin and your rebellion and your your spiritual violence against God, uh, your hatred of God and your your love of self and and rejection of God's love, if he loved you enough to redeem you then through godly sorrow that led to a prayer of repentance because of the gospel, how much does he love you now? You see, we, we sometimes think about the, or we often think about, because we often talk about the gospel and we think about the, the great love that God has for sinners. What about the great love God has for you as his child? He has great love for you. And this is something that we need to keep in mind because with this great, great love, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us when we confess sin. And that shouldn't be forgotten, beloved. We should hang on to that. That's an important thing for us to to understand and to hang on to, that he hasn't, God is not neglecting you now that you're uh, you're his child and and he somehow just is is focused on the unbelievers and he forgets all about uh, his children. That's not the case at all. He is faithful and righteous to forgive when we confess and he is faithful to keep his promise. In this, and he is faithful to restore us into fellowship and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness uh, as a result of our um, confession uh, to him. So, as children of God who have disobeyed, will disobey, um, we're forgiven because God is faithful. And he's just. And that forgiveness is not based on any merit of us. It's based on who Jesus is. And this is really important for us to understand. Did God close his eyes at Joshua's condition? Doesn't the scripture record for us that Joshua was was clothed in filthy rags, in in filthy garments as the high priest? That's what it reveals to us. God wasn't defending Joshua's sinful state. He was um, defending Joshua as his child and as his servant. That's that's what he was doing. So when Abraham disobeyed God, God didn't defend his disobedience. When Abraham, uh, you know, um, lied about his wife, God didn't defend his lying, but he defended Abraham as his servant and as his child, as a child of faith. He defended him there. So he kept the ruler from defiling Sarah because of Abraham's 
position with God the Father by faith. And so Abraham suffered the consequences of that. It, it brought consequences with it. And, you know, without having to go into that. But God still, God still ruled and reigned in that situation to accomplish his purposes through Abraham and Sarah, which is a phenomenal thought because they, they did commit wrong. So God wasn't defending their wrongful actions, but he did defend and accomplish his purposes in their lives. Excuse me. Black coffee. Let's let's move on here uh, this morning and, uh, and keep going with with our text uh, with our message. So our defense is the interceding Son of God. This is the final point in this section. When you listen to Satan's accusations, when you're taking that on board and believing what he has to say about you and taking that in, your focus goes inward. Your focus instantly goes away from God. Satan says, oh, look at you. You you lied. I'm a terrible liar. Your focus goes on to self. It goes on to your sins. And the result of this is despair and defeat. It's not victory. There's a fine line here because, and, and please don't think I'm trying to speak some sort of word of faith rubbish. And this will become clearer as we go further through. But that focus of turning inward and, and looking at ourselves, while that might be an aspect of guilt and remorse, that, you know, that godly sorrow, that may be an aspect of it. Definitely, when, when David sinned, he declared it to God, I have sinned. And on another occasion, he declared, I have sinned greatly. So. He could see the sin of his life. But the focus has to turn from that which will result in despair and defeat when we're just continually focused on and believing the lies of the enemy about us. It has to turn from that to, to God. That's where we need the help. If I remain focused on myself, I'm going to try to help myself at best or I'm going to sit wallowing in the corrupt state of my heart. So this is not the same. When, when we sit focused on the internal, this is not the same as being sorry for sins committed. And it's not the same as genuine conviction from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's conviction leads to us looking in faith upon Jesus, our advocate, at the throne of God. Now, if you have your Bibles there, um, you could look at Hebrews chapter 12. Go back into verse 11, which talks about the hall of faith. And um, I'll, I'll close out the last bit of chapter 11. And it says, All these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise God had provided, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made 
perfect apart from us. I'm reading from the New King James here. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares. How do we do that? And let us run with patience the race that is set before us or with endurance, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Hebrews 12 points out that there is a an inspection of, of, of sin in our lives whereby we come to this understanding of sin, but it's not enough to just sit there relishing or, or pondering over that sin. We have to turn from just looking at that sin to looking to, toward Jesus Christ and bringing that to him. And in the process of doing that, understand that Jesus is our advocate. Lay aside the weight and the sin, look unto Jesus. So the enemy wants us to despair. He, he wants to bring this accusation that would cause us to simply focus on our own hearts and, and wallow in despair and self-loathing. And this is not a biblical position. And, um, you know, sometimes there are statements made in the Reformed camp, even about believers, that states uh, them um, in, in a loathing way that is not a biblical position um, about how we should see ourselves in Christ Jesus as his, as his children. And um, that doesn't mean that we don't fail and that we're not still um, uh, very much wretched creatures in so many ways, but God calls us his children. And the focus that we should have is that when the enemy brings accusation, we need to quickly turn toward Jesus and look to him. The Holy Spirit's conviction results in us looking in faith upon Jesus. Why? Because he is our advocate. He's the one we need. God, I failed. And we look to Jesus for his mercy, for his strength, for his intercession on our behalf. Remember, he died for you. He died for you while you were yet a sinner. How much does he love you now? God will not, and and may we say cannot reject you on this basis because you belong to Jesus. The Father doesn't reject those who belong to Messiah. Now, we don't have time to go into a discussion here on um, eternal security and, and these kinds of things. Um, this statement is a statement made in and of itself, and we'll talk about that issue another time because I think it's something we do need to address because there is confusion and there are various different points, and they're not points that um, should lead to um, uh, uh, depression or, or um, uh, insecurity in believers' lives, and they're worth discussing. So. Through this relationship, though, because God doesn't reject those who belong to Messiah, there is a knowing that John speaks of that we will sin, and he says, but listen, when you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. There's an implication within that statement that, that with the correct response from us, we're not rejected because we belong to the Messiah. Now, because you belong to Jesus and because he intercedes for you, you can defeat Satan's accusations. Well, really, let's 
reframe that a little bit because it's not you defeating them. You can live in the victory that Jesus has in which he defeated Satan's accusations over you. So what this means is, though, that when uh, Satan pointed out Joshua's filthy rags, God says, hey, this is my servant. Clean him up, will you? Put him in clean clean robes. Your sin has been dealt with. Your sin has been dealt with not in your effort. It's been dealt with in Jesus Christ. He's the one who said it is finished. Not you and I. He's the one who declared the victory, not us. And that's really, really important for us to understand. Let's keep moving. I've still got a bit to cover here. So um, we we have a bit to get through. So um, there are some stages that Zechariah chapter 3 reveals to us um, of our experience in this issue of uh, the enemy's um, accusation and, you know, this kind of thing. So first there is Satan's resistance. Satan resists, Zechariah chapter 3. He stands and accuses. Uh, so he will resist you. He will stand and accuse you before God. Look at this servant of yours. But in Zechariah chapter 3, and and we don't have time to keep going back to it, but you go back and, and read through the chapter. The second one in the stage is that the father rebukes Zechariah. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So it's God's rebuke of Satan. Um, and this rebuke is based on God's grace toward his people. It's based on his grace toward uh, Joshua. He chose Joshua, and though Joshua was an imperfect vessel, God had um, laid him aside as his servant, and it is God's grace. You and I have been saved by God's grace through faith, and that grace does not depend upon human merit. So when Satan brings an accusation against you based on your merit. God says, but I love this person based on my grace because my son died for this person and they have faith in him. So Jesus went through the fires of judgment that he might pluck us from from that burning, you know. Our relationship with God is not based on law. It's not based on merit. It is based upon the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what it is based upon. So grace means that God accepts us by faith in Jesus Christ. It it does not mean that God accepts you by virtue of your talent or your uh, spiritual merit or your number of memory verses uh, that you've worked out or your church attendance or your, uh, you know, spiritual acumen. None of this. None of this. It it doesn't mean that God accepts you by virtue of how you appear in the Christian world, that you appear holy and righteous within the Christian community. It, It doesn't mean any of that. God's rebuke of the enemy is based on his grace toward you. 
So he rebukes the enemy because he has grace toward us because we have faith in Jesus Christ. So the third part, though, is that the father restores his child or his servant um, to relationship. He removes the filthy rags of the priest, of Joshua, and he put holy garments on him and uh, put a holy turban on his head. So uh, that turban had a gold plate and it said, a declaration, how's this for being in, in your face, Satan? It said, holy unto the Lord. That's what it said. How come? Not based on Joshua, not based on his merit, but based on what God had done in Joshua to Joshua through faith. That's what it was based upon. And God, uh, he didn't even put Joshua back on probation. He didn't say, listen, Joshua, you're on discipline. Uh, for three years, none of that. Um, he told him uh, he returned him to the temple uh, to carry on service. So, resistance, rebuke, restoration. God loves to restore His children. In fact, one of the greatest things to see, and and you know, we Christians can be so harsh on other Christians who fail. And social media has been an evil in this regard in so many ways because, uh, you know, a Christian makes uh, some kind of failing in their lives and rather than brothers and sisters going to that one and, and uh, helping to point them toward restoration in Christ Jesus, they plaster their failure all across the internet and the unsaved world rejoices in that and they say, see, here's another Christian who is a failure. Um, you know, the, the, we, we have to be careful of that kind of thing because if God is in the business of restoration of failing Christians and you, you and I are counted among them, you have failed God, I have failed God, and he demonstrated love towards us in restoring us, then why won't he restore others? I know there's an issue of repentance and with, without um, demonstration of repentance, there are, especially among leaders, there needs to be public rebuke of them, but we should be very careful uh, regarding that kind of thing. So Satan will accuse you. Don't listen to him. Turn by faith to Jesus. He's your advocate and confess your sins to him and trust what God's word says, uh, not how you feel. Feelings are not always wrong. They're not always wrong, but they don't come first. Fact, feeling, right? or fact-faith feeling, uh, in fact. Um, so rest on the grace of God um, uh, because if he's chosen, you know, if he's chosen that um, uh, that Christ would die in our place and that through faith in him we would uh, receive that mercy, how much more would he love you as his child when you humbly uh, surrender and yield to Christ uh, in in your time of difficulty and of sin. Wesley put together, Charles Wesley put together this beautiful hymn. Uh, it's just it's just amazing. And, um, you know, look, I hope that um, uh, Simon and the guys could get a hold of the music and we could do this, uh, do this hymn. This is just great. So I haven't got the music to play, just the words here. Depth of mercy. Can there be 
mercy still reserved for me. Can my God his wrath forbear? Me, the chief of sinners, spare. I have long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his face, would not hearken to his calls, grieved him by a thousand falls. There for me the Saviour stands, shows his wounds and spreads his hands. God is love, I know I feel, Jesus pleads and loves me still. Why to me this waste of love? Ask my advocate above. See the cause in Jesus' face, now before the throne of grace. If I rightly read thy heart, if thou all compassion art, bow thine ear in mercy bow, pardon and accept me now. Now incline me to repent. Let me now my fall lament. Now my foul revolt deplore. Weep, believe, and sin no more. What, what an amazing hymn. And um, what a great revelation uh, in the life of Charles Wesley, who gave us so many beautiful songs, beautiful hymns. Your defense is the interceding. Son of God. Now, as we round this out this morning, unconfessed sin is one of the most basic footholds of the enemy um, against our lives. He can use that sin as a basis for accusation, and then the introspection starts and the, the self loathing starts, and and we can feed on that. The longer he accuses, the greater the sin becomes in our eyes. And, um, you know, so we must quickly turn um, toward Christ because what happens then is as, as we are focused on that unconfessed sin and that self-loathing, it hides God's grace and love from view. And, you know, we used to say if you have um, a, a small view of God, you will see a big view of your problems. You know, if, if I keep pushing this uh, thumb up to here, I can I can block my the the view, which may be a blessing for you. you block the view of you away from me, and um, uh, the size of my thumb didn't change. Still a small thumb, but the focus of that changed, so that the thumb is able to completely block out from view that which you're trying trying to see, maybe trying to see. So unconfessed sin hides God's grace and love from view because it becomes a focus of our lives and, and it, it, it damages the condition of our heart from being tender and our heart becomes calloused and, and it, it just prevents us from walking in fellowship and in union with God. Now, Satan will use guilt as a terrible weapon, destroying joy, peace and fellowship with God and soon our hearts can become very hardened towards God in that condition. And we need to be careful not to listen to the voice of the enemy because guilt becomes, in Satan's hands, a terrible weapon and soon we will be hearing the voice of the enemy about ourselves and about, um, about God. We'll be hearing his false accusations about God and about other people that nobody loves you. Uh, because look at you, you're such a failure. And so we, we begin listening to this. Um, so we need to not listen to the voice of the enemy. Instead, 
listen to the voice of God. How do we do that? How are we going to listen to the voice of God? One way is simply to get um, substantially into the Word of God. That is, that is God's revealed will to you. That's what he has to say to you, his, his Word. Turn to the Word of God and believe what God says and believe especially what God says about you. And that's important because when the enemy brings accusation, you can go to God trusting God's word to be true and you can know that God has an intercessor for you, Jesus the righteous. He doesn't call you the righteous. He calls Jesus the righteous. And he says he's an advocate before God the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. So turn to the word of God. And don't delay in admitting or confessing sin because this gives Satan a greater opportunity to damage your life. That, that is an important point. Proverbs 28, uh, 13 says, He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes. The, the phrase confesses and forsakes is, is the epitome of repentance. So it is godly sorrow that works repentance. So confession and forsaking of sin. Um, he who confesses and forsakes them, sin or transgression, will find compassion. So, you know, God is compassionate to his children. And he has a purpose to mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. So let's just do a quick summary of um, uh, what we've seen over these recent weeks um, because it's good to kind of encapsulate it and, um, and see this very clearly. So we have met four people. Uh, in the Old Testament, we have met Eve, Job, David, and Joshua. And in meeting these four people, we, we have discovered that Satan has um, an individualized attack uh, or, or there are four aspects of Satan's attack against the children of God. And the, the, um, or the, the three aspects of his attack, sorry, there are four targets of his attack and there are four weapons that he uses and there are four purposes in these attacks and there are defences that you and I have. So Satan targets the mind. We saw that in Eve, the body, in Job, the will, in David, in the heart and the conscience. Uh, we don't have time to go back over. I'm just giving these to you as a summary. His weapon, in each of these cases, he used lies with Eve, suffering with Job, pride with David, and accusation with Joshua. His purpose with Eve was ignorance of the will of God. With Job was impatience with the will of God. With David was an, an, an action that, that was independent of God's will. And in Joshua, with this accusation, was to 
gain a sense of indictment because our lifestyle does not match with the will of God. And so an indictment comes upon us, which leads to this self-condemnation and self-loathing, uh, self-loathing, regardless of where uh, our position in Christ. What is your defense in these? The inspired word of God. When Satan said, as God said, Eve should have responded, God has said and not twisted it, the imparted grace of God, resting and trusting in the grace of God, the indwelling spirit of God, and the interceding son of God. I hope the chart will kind of help you to see the, the progression of where we've come from. Uh, you know, I, I must credit Warren Wiersbe for uh, the conciseness of this chart. It's fantastic. And um, it really is a, a good teaching tool for us. So we'll learn more about Satan's attacks um, and how he applies these kinds of attacks against the mind, the body, the will, and the heart, the conscience um, within the church, within your home, uh, within your life individually, uh, within your, your family, uh, within the community. Um, you know, it, it can extend all the way up to governments um, and nations. Um, so these are really powerful principles for us to uh, get a hold of. But I think that this last lesson on uh, Satan's target being the heart and the conscience as the accuser um, is a really important one for us because many, many believers who've come to know Jesus Christ struggle in this particular area because they don't understand the grace of God and our positional righteousness and they then uh, fail to see that Christ sits as intercessor for and on our behalf. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Now, Father, we thank you for this morning. We praise you so much for the love you've shown us in Jesus Christ. We love you for this, Lord God. We praise you for the grace and mercy that you bestowed on us through his death on the cross and by faith in his death, in his resurrection, and in his ascension. We thank you that Christ was raised from the dead and so also we, if we suffer in this world and die in this world, will be raised from the dead. We praise you for this. We thank you, Lord, for your great love. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.